been a joy to be with you this morning, starting at 8 o'clock, 9.30, and now with you. And not only is Talbot right down the street, but I think I've said this before, my house, is, this is the closest church to my house. I live up on the corner, the cross streets, Puente and Central, so just one block up behind that strip mall, and we've lived there since 1998. My wife, Joni, is with me this morning, and her mother, Marilyn, if you guys could just wave your hands. Joni, stick your hand way up, let everybody see it, there you are, right there, so I'm glad that they are here. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14 this morning, if you could open up your Bibles uh, to that passage. We are going to be ending the service with the Lord's Supper, and I think that's very appropriate for a chapter like this that we're going to be looking at in Romans. We've been singing about the amazing things that God has done for us through Jesus. I mean, it's amazing that he would take our place. We get to sing those kind of songs. Why? Because it's true. We were dead and he made us alive. And we're going to celebrate that as Jesus gave us this memorial to remember his body and his blood and the unity that that provides for us as believers. And the reason it's important that this service is moving towards that moment is because our passage today, Romans 14, is having us focus on when there are differences within the body. And actually, this is going to be taking us through chapter 15 as well. There's some sermon notes in the bulletin if you want to follow along. I think they'll be helpful to you in the main principal points that I want to make this morning. But let me begin with a story. My older brother is one year and four days older than me. And we have another brother. But because we were so close in age, we ended up sharing a room. You know, there's so many three-bedroom homes. Mom and dad get one, and then you've got two bedrooms, and the two closest in age in our house um, had the room together. So John and I shared a room. Now, let me give you one word to describe each of us. So for John, messy. Okay, your mind can go wherever you want to with that. And then for me, neat. Okay, in your mind, some of you are going, I like you, Dave. And some of you are saying, I like your brother, John. But just using those two words to describe us as different. Now, put us in the same room. That didn't always go really well. And I got tired of my brother's mess. Now, the way I thought about life was this. If you keep your room clean, you never have to clean it. It's just that simple. In fact, one night, I remember I wanted to get ready for school the next morning. I wanted to make sure I was on time. I didn't even get underneath my covers in my bed. I just said, if I stay on top of my covers, I won't have to make my bed in the morning. Now, now you realize that I need counseling. <laughs> I, I need a lot of help with this. But So, I mean, that's just the way I was. My brother, messy, for him meant, hey, if you just keep it messy, you never have to clean it either. Because messy is the rule of the day. So put us in the same room. And I got tired of his mess. So one day I came up with a plan. And the plan was this. I went to the utility closet in our house and I got a roll of masking tape. And we shared a, a dresser and that dresser was right in the middle of the room. Bed over here, bed over here. And I took that masking tape and I put it down the center of the dresser down the front of it, dividing our dressers, and I took it on down to the floor, and I took it across the floor, you know, neatly pressing it into the carpet, and then because my room was on the side of the room that did not have the door, I made a little bit of tape going towards the door so that I could actually get out the door, and then I told my brother, this is my side of the room, this is your side of the room, you keep your mess, 
on your side of the room. I want nothing to do with your mess. If your mess gets on my side, I'm going to put it back on your side. And my brother, I mean, he would just, he had to get access to the closet on my side of the room. Stuff would just be everywhere. But if it got on that dresser, I would just move it over to the other side of the masking tape. If it got on my side of the room, I just dumped it on his side of the room. Now, great plan. Now, just to let you know, my mom and dad didn't like that plan. And so the masking tape came up and ruined my perfect world. But my point is this, in the church, because we have differences of opinions, we oftentimes find ways to put masking tape down maybe the middle of our sanctuary. Messy people over here, neat people over here. It'd be interesting to see what seats we chose on a particular Sunday morning. No, there are other issues that might become divisive for us. And when you hold this particular position, you might look down on someone else. Or if you hold this position over here, you might judge these people over here. Romans 14 is trying to deal with this. And so let's ask God to teach us um, as we open up this passage this morning. Lord, we all come from different places in life. And we all come from different places of understanding you and your word. And Lord, we pray today that you would teach us the things that you want us to learn so that we could grow in godliness and grow in our love for one another and grow in our love for you. So Lord, would you help us today? Would you make your word alive and powerful for us? And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've put a title on this message, and I've got a few different words. Living underneath the same rules? No. Living underneath the same roof? No. Living underneath the same Lord? Yes. See, we're all under the same Lord, but not necessarily under the same rules, even though we are underneath the same roof as a body of believers. But I want to make a few preliminary thoughts first. And the first one is that Romans 14 is a part of a larger unit. You've got Romans 14 and 15. If we could put the chart up there. We've got 14 and 15. And there are basically four points that are going to be made in these four chapters. And we're going to focus on just the first two points, chapter 14 this morning. Look at those two points. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, both strong and weak, and we're going to... um, define those in just a moment. Both strong and weak need to stop condemning each other because it is the Lord and he alone who has the right to assess the believer's status and conduct, the things that we do, the way that we live. So the point is stop fighting, accept one another. Then when we get to verses 13 through 23, the major point being made is the strong must be careful not to cause the weak to suffer spiritual harm by their insistence on exercising their liberty on disputed matters. So certain ones in a congregation like this feel more freedoms in certain areas than others do. You've got to be careful how you exercise that freedom because freedom, you don't want to uh, um, cause spiritual harm to another member of the body of Christ. Such insistence violates the essence of the kingdom, which is the manifest love and concern for one another. So those are the two big points. Next week, I imagine sometime in the weeks ahead, maybe it's after the new year, you'll be getting into Romans uh, 15 and you'll see those other two points or however the pastor might divide that up at that point. Now, I wanna make another preliminary thought though. When we turn in our Bibles to chapter 14, verse one, 
we need to be aware that there is a context. Oftentimes in the church, when we preach a sermon this week and go to the next week and go to the next, we oftentimes forget what lay behind us, what passage we just looked at. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, has everything to do with chapter 14. Everything. It is the foundation. Paul is building an argument. And we could go back to uh, verse 8, but I, I just want to take us back to verse 11. And this do, talking about this, this love is the idea that's being talked about. And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And Paul's talking about the culmination of the kingdom and the fullness of time that's going to come. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as is in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Here's the point. Anything that Paul's going to say about freedom or liberties in this passage is founded on putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, living underneath his rule and reign, living as followers of Jesus. We've got our hands on the plow, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are striving to live our life in him, in the sphere of our relationship with him and his righteousness. Christ's likeness is assumed by Paul when he starts talking about freedoms. You see, some actions in this world are not a preference. Some actions are clearly sin. So Paul's not saying, hey, you're free in Christ, do whatever. No, he's saying, you're free in Christ. Now, in the life that you have in Christ, the, underneath his rule and his reign, there are certain freedoms that come with that. Some people feel restricted and some people feel those freedoms, but Christ-likeness is assumed throughout. So preferences on disputable matters are going to be in this room. They're going to be in various families. They're even going to be in marriages. It's, there's oftentimes um, preferences that are differing between older generation and younger generation. All of these things are out there. No one is necessarily right as long as everyone is yielding themselves to the rule and reign of Jesus. So anything we say about freedoms now is founded on these verses that go before. And so let's think about it. We've got two major points that this passage is making, but as we work our way through the passage, I want to highlight five principles. Principle number one, maintain unity with those who disagree with you rather than be judgmental. Now, as we read through this passage, you, you probably have different translations in here. I'm actually going to use Ray Ortland Jr.'s book. Um, it's called A Passion for God. And he translates the entire book of Romans. And he has meditations and prayers that go through it. And I love the, the translation. He just brings it right into our heart. So I want you to follow along in your Bibles. But I'm going to actually read uh, from Ray Ortland Jr.'s translation. So this first principle is found in verses one through four. And it says this, welcome into your fellowship the believer whose faith has not yet grown strong enough to enjoy the liberty opened up by free justification. In Christ, we have so many liberties is what Paul is saying. But there's some who are not opened up to that yet. 
And in receiving such a one, do not require that your disagreements be settled. For example, one Christian's faith allows him to eat all kinds of food while another Christian is a vegetarian. That's the particular issue that Paul has on the table as he writes to the church at Rome. The difference between Jews and Gentiles, the way they dealt with that. We could walk into the background stuff, but we're just going to keep it right here. Some, he also raises the issues of the way days are observed or not observed. But, but Paul is trying to say, let me, let me give an example. One Christian's faith allows him to eat all kinds of foods, while another Christian is a vegetarian. Goes on in verse, uh, continuing in verse two. But your respect for one another is more important than your differences. Verse three. So the one who eats whatever he likes must not despise the other, and the one who restricts his diet must not condemn the other, because God has welcomed each one into the fellowship. Verse four. Who are you? to set the standard of acceptability for someone else's servant. It's up to his master, not you, to determine the acceptability or unacceptability of his service. And each servant will be acceptable because the master is able to make him acceptable in the things that matter. And so this first principle, maintain unity with those who disagree with you rather than be judgmental. So right out, right out of the gate, uh, Paul is talking about believers whose faith is not yet grown or weak in faith. Now, what we need to understand, first of all, is this word faith is not saving faith. This is not whether someone's saved, this person's weak in their faith, they're almost saved. This one's strong in faith, he's really saved or she's really saved. No, what this has to do is what we might, we might use the word living out your faith. In the living out faith, one is weaker and the living out faith, one is stronger. So the weaker person here, the one that's weak in faith, is a person who doesn't have in their, doesn't have confidence in living out their faith in Christ. They, they bring restrictions to themselves. Thou shalt not, thou shalt um, kind of ideas, what they do. So they bring restrictions in. Let me, let me define these two groups for us. The first group, weak in faith, has a weak conscience on an issue, and so they restrict themselves. That's the easiest way to understand it. For the strong in faith, the strong, they have a strong conscience, and so they exercise certain freedoms. And so the weak's conscience lacks sufficient confidence, the living out of their faith, to engage in certain activities, to do certain things. In this particular case, it's eat certain foods or observe or not observe certain days. And so because of their conscience, they, they should not actually live that out. For the, them, it would be sin. And so this conscience becomes a very important part of this passage for Paul. And we're going to try to understand this more as we work our way through this passage. This person may lack understanding, but they are pursuing Christ. And in their pursuit of Christ, their conscience would be restrictive for them. Verse 1 says that you are to accept them or to welcome the one who is weak in faith. So the strong is the one who's really being focused on in this passage. God has something to say to both strong and weak. But to the strong, he says, accept or welcome those who are weak in faith. The idea is to maintain fellowship. There are certain things that should not be divisive in the body of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, it's not that big of a deal. You've made it everything, but it's not. It's just a preference that might be there. 
And so when we think about the, the weak in faith, the issue for the weak is that, and that's the one who only eats vegetables, they may be tempted to judge those. So here's the weak, looking at those who are free, they may be tempted to judge that particular person. And so in their judging, they might have this attitude of, how can those people be Christians and do that? They should know better than that. That makes the gospel look bad. Christians don't do these things. And so you see the restrictions that are there? That they, they just want to hem in their life. They've got freedoms in Christ, but they're just hemming those in. And they can be judgmental towards those who are around them. Whereas the strong in faith, that's in this passage, the one who eats meat. The strong in faith might be tempted to regard with contempt or look down or despise those who are weak. They have a different attitude. Their attitude might be, those people don't understand the freedom we have in Christ. They're so immature. They just don't get it. They don't understand the gospel. They don't get what we have in Christ. They're legalistic. All they think about is rules. And so you've got two different ways of looking at things. Paul's concern here is attitude of superiority. Both sides the strong in faith, the weak in faith can have a superior attitude. Judgmental, looking down upon, um, trying to give them, they should obey our rules and then treating with contempt, looking down upon, they don't understand our freedoms that we have in Christ. Paul says both are wrong in this particular situation. So let's consider the issue of alcohol. I think that would be one that we could oftentimes think about. And so let's just take a particular posture. If we put this one up here, since the consumption of alcohol is of the devil, it's obvious that people in this slide are not followers of Jesus. So, you know, here's our test case. Those are not Christians. They're consuming alcohol. I grew up in churches like that. I grew up in churches where you could, they could actually prove that Jesus did not turn the water into wine. Jesus turned the water into grape juice. And they could give a very long scientific explanation as to how this happened. It doesn't matter what the text said. Um, it, it was grape juice. We, we know it was not fermented and it was not alcoholic. I mean, I grew up in a church like that. Now, let's ask ourselves a question. Does the scripture explicitly state, thou shalt not drink alcohol? Well, no, it, it doesn't. But there are some who might restrict themselves from drinking it. But let's ask a second question. Is alcohol ever prohibited in, uh, in Scripture? Well, absolutely. Drunkenness is a problem. And Scripture has some things to say about drunkenness and those who would live that particular kind of lifestyle. So does scripture say you can't drink alcohol? No. Does it prohibit the excessiveness of alcohol? Yes. But even so, do some believers find it offensive to drink alcohol to any degree? Yes. Some put a boundary on those things in their life. And Paul's point is, when someone has a different preference than you, and if you are strong and you understand the freedoms you have in Christ underneath the rule and reign of Jesus as you pursue his word and, and desire to live for him, and you understand those freedoms, if someone else doesn't, you welcome them. You welcome them. 
You don't make this a divisive issue. And why accept? Well, verses three and four actually explain that to us. And we have two points that I want to highlight. Number one, God accepts them. Look at the end of verse three. God accepts them. God has welcomed each one into the fellowship is the way Ortland translates that. If God allows his people to have different perspectives, to hold different opinions, then Paul's question is, should you force them to agree with you? God, God has already allowed the different opinions. Should, should you force them to agree with you? And then he goes on in verse four and says, God is the one who is the master. You're not. You aren't looking at your brother and sister in Christ and telling them how to live their life. They are ultimately responsible to God. When you look down on someone who's got a weaker conscience or you judge someone with a stronger conscience, you're acting as though that person is your servant responsible to you that you are their master, but you're not. God is master. God has welcomed them and so should you. That's the point that Paul is making there. Now, remember, we're not talking about just any kind of preferences out there. We're talking about preferences that are formed in, in, in the word of God, that are being led by the Holy Spirit, a conscience that is, that is growing in Christ, that's being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so that first principle, Paul says, let's not, let's not be judgmental to one another. But let's look at the second principle. Believers must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience as they live before the Lord because he is the one to whom they are accountable. Now, this is found in verses 5 through 12. Listen to what Ortland's translation says. Or there's also the question of days. So we've talked about food. Now we're going to talk about days. One Christian esteems one day more than another while the next Christian considers every day the same. But more important than the disagreements Itself is the necessity that each of us form a, a person, settled personal conviction. See, I want to stop right here because Paul's making a very important point. Paul says differences might be there, but here's what's really important, that you have a settled personal conviction. Here's my concern for the younger generation. If you're a younger generation here, please listen to me. I'm not saying you're in this category, but let me tell you my concern with the younger generation. They are passionate about their beliefs. They believe strongly certain things, but if you ask them why, what do they base that belief on? Very rarely are you going to get a chapter and verse. Very rarely are they going to open up their Bible and say, because I really believe that this is the way God calls me to live. They just want their rights. They want their privileges, this entitlement that comes to them. Here, Paul is making a point. You've got to have settled personal convictions. Let me talk about the older generation for a little bit. The older generation oftentimes has, has their, their rules and their regulations that live by. Sometimes it's been inherited, passed on to them like the churches that I grew up in. It's not necessarily because I've studied the word of God and thought about this. It's simply because this is the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it is in the church. Everybody knows that this is what it means to be a Christian. And then you get the clash of the two. And so I grew up in a church where, yeah, alcohol was just of the devil. And then I began to study the Bible. And then all of a sudden I went through this phase where theologically, I knew that alcohol consumption was not of the devil. In fact, Jesus drank wine. I began to come to that conclusion. The Last Supper included wine. Okay, that's my theological conviction as I read the story. But then all of a sudden, when I would get around Christians who drank wine, I still couldn't handle it emotionally. 
they're Christians and they're drinking wine. I can't believe that. Theologically, emotionally. Theologically, experientially. See, there was a clash going on inside of me, but what was happening? I wanted my settled personal convictions to come from God's word. Not just my personal opinion or my personal preference. So whether I'm just passing down something that's been passed to me or I feel this entitlement that I can do everything or anything, Paul says, listen, what really matters is not the differences. What really matters is that you're basing your personal settled conviction on the word of God, that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, that the Holy Spirit is leading you. We are talking about immersing yourself in God's word. Listen, people of God, we must immerse ourselves in God's word. We must cry out to God and yield to him in prayer. We must bring everything in our lives underneath his lordship, yielding everything to him, being led by the Holy Spirit so that when we live, when we say, when we act, it's all underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. That our settled personal conviction is grounded in God's word, led by the Holy Spirit. And as we live differently, we live differently to the glory of God. Notice what Paul goes on and says. He says, that way, even if we are mistaken, I love the way Orleans translated this, even if we are mistaken, the governing principle of our lives will still fit the ultimate Christian criterion, which is what? Living for the Lord. So the one observes a certain day as holy, does so for the Lord. The one who eats whatever he likes does so for the Lord, giving God thanks. And the one who restricts his diet does so for the Lord, giving God thanks no less. I like the way, no less, even though he can't eat meat, giving thanks to God no less. Can't have the carne asada, still gives thanks to God no less is the idea there, I think. I just read that into the text. Verse 7 Look at it from the larger perspective. None of us lives for self. None of us dies for self. As long as we live, our living serves the Lord. And when we come to die, our dying serves the Lord. In both living and dying, we are in service of the Lord. It was for this very purpose that Christ died and sprang again to life, that he would reign as Lord over both the dead and the living. And here we have the elements up here, reminding of his death, burial, and resurrection. Why? So that we could live for the Lord, ultimately. What warrant, then, do you have for condemning your brother? Or you there, what warrant do you have for despising your brother? Judgment is indeed in order when we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as certain it is as my very existence, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me in submission. Every tongue will make to God its confession. And then finally in verse 12, yes, each of us will give account of himself to God. Oh, there's gonna be judgment, all right. But that judgment is not going to be between one another. It's going to be before the Lord. And so as we live, there may be some who are stronger in the faith, living out their faith. Some who are weaker in their faith, living out their faith. They've got some restrictions. But all of us are to do it for the Lord. Do you follow me on this? All of us have a settled personal conviction that rises up out of God's word. And therefore, we respect one another. Now, our consciences aren't always right, are they? Our conscience can be wrong. In fact, 
We have passages like Romans 12, 1 and 2 that's talking about the renewing of our minds day by day. Something's renewing in us day by day. Something's going to grow in us. Those who are weaker in their faith, they may be experiencing some grace along the way where they understand more and more and there's maturation taking place. But until then, they must live by their settled personal conviction that arises out of God's word. Our conscience is important for us but our conscience is being renewed day by day. What this passage is saying that if your conscience leads you to restrict certain behavior, then follow your conscience. Because if you don't, it is sin. You need to follow that conscience. You must be fully convinced of your position and then live consistently by that decision until the Lord may lead you by his word, by his spirit to a different conviction. So this freedom, whether, whether it's the, the one who's free in Christ or the one who restricts themselves in Christ, the bottom line issue is this is a saturating yourself with the word of God, looking unto Jesus, living all of your lives, every word, every deed for his honor and glory and being settled in your heart that this is for the Lord, the way I'm living. And so if you drink alcohol, it's for the Lord. If you choose to restrict yourself, it's for the Lord. What would be on our list? Tattoos, if you get a tattoo, for the Lord. If you don't get a tattoo, for the Lord. Would we put gambling in this category? If we gamble, for the Lord. If we don't gamble, for the Lord. See, all of these things, we've got to ground the decisions we make in the word of God. I would say that being a professor at Biola, the number one email I get from parents every year is my son or daughter wants to get a tattoo. Would you please take them to Leviticus chapter whatever and show them that this is contrary to the teaching of God's word. Well, Leviticus chapter whatever is in the Mosaic covenant. I'm not under the Mosaic covenant, are you? No, I'm under the new covenant. Now, does that mean it's disregarded? No, all, all scriptures profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. But I don't offer up a bull on the altar and slit the throat and offer blood to the Lord. No, Jesus has offered himself and set down at the right hand of God. So I've got to understand all of that in light of Christ. And I've got to understand whatever it says in Leviticus chapter whatever about tattoos in light of Christ as well. But Paul is saying, hey, don't divide over these things. But also make sure that you've got a settled personal conviction about this. Don't just say, I want a tattoo because everybody... No, go to God's word and you think about the way you live. I I really want to encourage this particular point. Can you feel that I'm really trying to encourage this particular point? We've got to be men and women of the word And we've got to define the lifestyle that we live grounded in the word. The issue is not tattoo. Well, let's even get on to our point. Paul wants to make another point. Look at, well, remember the big point of chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Both strong and weak need to stop condemning each other. But let's go to principle number three. Freedoms are good, but they should never destroy the, the faith of one who is weaker in faith. We got the love principle here. We saw that back in 13, beginning in chapter, I mean, verse 8. And now we've got this thing again in verses 13 through 15. Again, using uh, Ortland's translation, our accountability to God means then that we must stop condemning one another in these merely personal matters. Instead, let this principle be your policy. What policy? What principle? Never to impede or hinder a fellow Christian in his walk of faith. Never 
to impede or hinder a fellow Christian in his walk of faith. Personally, Paul says, I am totally convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that none of these disputed things is intrinsically unclean. He's talking about food and days of the week here. But so they're not intrinsically unclean, but any of them becomes virtually unclean for the Christian whose conscience considers it so. So the one who's weak in faith says, I can't eat meat. Paul says, actually, that's not intrinsically unclean. It's not a problem. But because of his conscience, it is. So for those of you who are strong in the faith, your freedoms are good. But don't exercise your freedom ever in a way that impedes the growth of one who is weaker. Paul puts the responsibility on the strong here. He wants them to understand the responsibility that they have. So in verse 15, he goes on and says, if your brother suffers anguish because of what you eat, your exercise of legitimate freedom has failed to meet the higher test of love. Again, going back to chapter 13, verse 8, oh, no man, anything but to love one another. That the higher test of love. And it goes on and says, do not ruin one for whom Christ died for the sake of your mouthful of food. I love that translation. Do not ruin your brother or the one for whom Christ died for the sake of your mouth full of food. I just got to have meat. I just got to have it. I live for this. Paul says, don't ever do that. Because if you're going to hinder the faith of another member of the body of Christ, all the damage that's done with that. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Paul focuses on the strong because because God calls on them to bear the weaknesses of the weak. You're going to see this next week, chapter 15, verse 1. You see it right away, right out of the gate in chapter 15, or whenever you go through chapter 15. And also because only the strong have a choice. See, the strong have all these options that are there, whereas the weak have restricted themselves. And so Paul says, in the exercise of all your freedoms, when you encounter one for whom Christ died, who has restrictions, don't, for the sake of your freedoms, don't, don't exercise those to the detriment of your brother or sister in Christ. Now, the weak also have a responsibility. The weak have a responsibility not to impose their conscience on others in the church. In their restrictiveness, it's a serious sin to try to bind someone else's conscience with rules that God does not clearly command. Alcohol's of the devil. I mean, actually, it's not. And so when you impose that on someone else, that's sin on your part too, to bind someone up, to, to set on them rules and regulations. That's what the Pharisees did in the New Testament. And, and Paul would say, oh, no, don't do that either. No, 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 no. Stop judging one another. Stop looking down at one another. Let's, let's work together for the unity of Christ. Paul puts the responsibility on the strong. And so some of you might be stronger in your faith than others. The responsibility is on you. Don't, don't damage the growing faith of another with the exercise of your freedoms. Principle number four in verses 16 through 21, we're just continuing to build on this. Building others up in righteousness, peace, and joy is what is important in the kingdom of God, not being right on disputable matters. I'm just going to prove to you I'm right. Well, that, that's not the goal of the kingdom. 
The goal of the kingdom is, is right living and joy and peace and the unity that we have in Christ. And so in verses uh, 16 through 21, listen to what Paul says. He says, do not let the freedom of the gospel, a good thing in itself and a benefit to you, be slandered due to your abuse of it. For the kingdom of God becomes clearly manifest, not when Christians insist on pleasing themselves with their food and drink, but when their lives demonstrate righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is why, verse 18, that is why the believer who serves Christ with such graciousness of life is a delight to God and convincing to man. Verse 19, so then let us work hard at developing a relational atmosphere conducive to harmony and growth together. Verse 20, do not undo what God is doing in other believers' lives for the sake of mere food. Yes, all foods are clean, but it's wrong to exercise his freedom indifferent to the problems it creates for others. Verse 21, the right thing to do is to not eat foods or drink wine or do other things which would work mischief in the life of a fellow believer. If you have a strong faith, verse 22, enjoy it in personal communion with God, not in causing trouble for other Christians. In other words, if, if you've got that if you live without restrictions, again, born out of a study of God's word, walking in the spirit, prayerful consideration before the Lord, and you've got certain freedoms, don't ever exercise those to the detriment of one who, underneath the authority of God, pursuing him with all their heart, under the authority of scripture, prayerful attitude toward God, being led by the Holy Spirit, would find themselves in a place that restricts themselves from exercising certain freedoms. Often we have little patience with our spiritual family and we want to get out the masking tape and say, just go over there. I'm going to hang out with these people because we understand each other. You guys over there are bound up by rules or I'm going to hang out with these people over here because we understand each other. You over there, you, you are abusing the gospel and we just divide. The masking tape becomes a nice little safe place. In this particular instance, let's just look at the big picture of the Bible when we get to Romans uh, 14, it's, it's clear meat is not a problem. In Mark 7, Jesus said, it's not, it's not a problem that goes in, it's what comes out of the heart. In Acts chapter 10, Paul gives Peter, I mean, Jesus gives Peter three visions. Hey, here's the tablecloth, eat. Oh, I can't eat that meat. No, eat. Let me tell you a third time, eat. We've got 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. We've got this passage here. All of them are making it clear meat is not the issue. Yet, what is Paul up against in Rome? There are some who are restricting themselves. Some may still struggle. It's not a sin issue. They are pursuing the Lord. They are underneath the authority of God's word. They are prayerfully considering these things before the Lord. They are being led by the Holy Spirit. But yet they find themselves in a place where they restrict they probably need to grow to be strong. They probably need to see the freedoms that are theirs in Christ. But until then, the body must fight for unity. Just fight for unity. In verse 21 again, the, in, the indifferent, the, no, the right thing to do is not to eat foods or drink wine or do other things which would work mischief in the body of Christ. There was Biola students that got married while they were still at Biola a few years back. And they came to me and said, we got a problem. The young lady said, in my house, we drink wine and we enjoy it. 
we never abused it. We just enjoyed it. And the young man said, in, in my family, drinking wine was of the devil. And now we're married. Help us. We opened up our Bibles to Romans 14 and 15. And we just read the clear teaching. And you may think it's unfair if you're more strong in the faith that you are being called to not exercise your freedom for the growth of the faith of a weaker brother or sister in Christ. You may think that's unfair. But when we submit ourselves to Scripture, watch God work. And this young lady decided she was going to submit to Scripture, honoring her husband, who was her weaker in faith, and she began to live that lifestyle with him. And Now, this is not the moral of the story, but he ended up drinking wine, and now they drink wine in their home. That's not the point of this passage. Is Hey, persevere, and you'll all be drinking wine together. <laughs> That's not the point of this passage. But God gifted her with a husband who grew in his faith. But before that happened, they fought for unity. Not just in their church, but in their marriage. They fought for unity. Now, God made it easier for them by one day he was drinking alcohol with her. But that's not the point. It may never happen. And Paul says, put your differences aside. There's something much bigger here. And the fifth principle, a person who lives according to their convictions before the God is blessed, happy. I mean, don't you love the word happy in the Bible? Happy, blessed is the one whose conscience does not cast doubt on the choices he makes, but the one who is unsure when he eats something stands condemned in the very act. Live out your conscience because if you feel underneath the authority of God's word, prayer for consideration before the Lord, being led by the Holy Spirit, that you are to live more of a restricted life, then do so and you will be happy is what Paul says. But if you, underneath the authority of God's word, prayer for consideration before God, being led by the Holy Spirit, you experience the freedoms you have in Christ, then happy are you. And the reason both are happy is because they have a settled personal conviction of what it means to live underneath the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where peace is, amen? That's where joy is. That's where rest is. And that's what brings unity to the body when we set those differences aside for something bigger. And so... The, the, the focus of this passage, and I think chapter 15 is going to be the strong. But let's live with the bigger picture in mind. The, one of the reasons I, I think it's so beautiful that this time leads to the Lord's Supper is because the Lord's Supper is about unity. It's about the unity we have in Christ. And I don't know what the, the issues are that this body of believers might be dealing with. But God calls you to give respect to one another. And I imagine more it's going to be father, mom and dad, the child is where some of the issues are going to be. You're so old-fashioned. You're so liberal. Let's have a settled conviction underneath the word of God. Can we open up our Bibles together? I mean, just open up our Bibles. Seek the Lord together. Let's don't just have opinions. Let's have opinions that are grown out of proper understanding of the authority of God's word, a proper understanding of yielding our lives to his rule and reign, a proper understanding of being led by the Holy Spirit.